Well, as you're turning to 2 Timothy chapter 3 in preparation for the message this morning, just a reminder of three announcements I want to bring to your attention. Number one, second service, we do have adult Sunday school, and so I would encourage you to, uh, to stay and go to attend that. The topic that the guys will be covering this day is fasting. Also, by way of reminder, we are intending to um, have annual baptisms on Resurrection Sunday on Easter. And so if you have questions or desire to get baptized, we have a meeting at 1 p.m. on next Sunday, April 3rd. And if you would like to attend that meeting, it would be really helpful if you emailed the church secretary to RSVP. And also, as Caleb mentioned, we are trying a new format for our Covenant Membership Seminar. And so in two weeks, on Friday, Saturday, Friday night, 6 to 9 p.m., Saturday, 9 to noon, we're going to have our Covenant Membership Seminar April 8th and 9th. Uh, we also would like you to RSVP for that because we provide food. You could RSVP to pa Pastor Andy or just fill out one of the connection cards and RSVP to that. So if you are a member but have not gone through the membership seminar in a number of time or not, in, in a, recently, please join us, not only to be refreshed, but also to meet people who are thinking about covenanting with our church family. Um, there's no obligation to join the church. We don't, Andy might force you to sign on the dotted line afterwards, but there's no obligation. It's just a, an opportunity to kick the tires and lift the hood of the church and, and see what we're about and what makes us unique from other gospel preaching churches in town. So um, that is on April 8th and 9th. Well, we're in a series called Ecclesia, Features of a Faithful Church. And this morning is a part two from last week. The subtitle is Preaching All of Christ from All of Scripture. And so we're going to stand on the shoulders of last week as we think about what the Word teaches and commands to be central in the life of a local church. So without further ado, I want to set before us 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, all the way down to chapter 4, verse 5. This is the same text as last week, building on it this week. So if you would, 2 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 14, Scripture reads, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it and how, from childhood, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing, and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions 
and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. But as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Well, this is God's word. Let's look to him together in prayer. Lord, we know that for those of us in Christ, you have given ministry to all of us. We want to be found faithful, empowered by your spirit to fulfill the ministry that you've given to us. This morning, Lord, as we look at your word, we want to think well and wisely by your grace of your word preached. To understand, Lord, your mind in preaching, why you've made it central, why it is so important, and what you intend and will accomplish in it. So, Lord, would you please magnify Jesus Christ? By your Spirit, would you make all the more precious to us the incarnation of God the Son, his perfect life, his death to atone for our sins, his resurrection for our justification, make Jesus famous in this place through the preaching of your word. Lord, we pray that you would satisfy us with your love this morning, that we would rejoice at your word like one who finds great treasure, that we would be attentive and take care to your word preached. To that end, would you let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, and all of God's people said, amen. Well, a question that I asked last week is pertinent to ask again of us this week, and it's this. What do you think is the central and essential feature of a true and faithful church? Perhaps you have spent a lot of time thinking about that, and perhaps you've, that's never even crossed your mind. What is essential for a church, a church to be a true church from a false church? And what's essential to characterize a church from being faithful and healthy to faithless and moving towards sickness? What's central? And we considered last week, is it, is it singing? For many people, it's when they come into the church, it, it may be the singing and, and, and the, their evaluation of the quality of the music and the lights down low and more. For other people, the most important aspect of a church is the service length. And if it's just short enough or long enough, depending upon your perspective, to get some um, religious feel-good so that you can make it to Applebee's or Red Robin, then it suits your desires. Is, is a church defined by its ministry amenities? Youth group and children's ministry, women's ministry, men's ministry, and any type of ministry are those that make the central and essential feature of a faithful church. Essential means that if you took it away, it wouldn't be what it's supposed to be anymore. That, that's what really what the question comes down to. And so last week, what we saw from Scripture is that the central and essential feature of a faithful church as given to us by Christ is the prayerful preaching of all of Christ from all of Scripture. And we saw last week that what Scripture argues, and therefore what I am preaching about, and also church history shows, that the central feature, not soul, there are other many features 
to make a church faithful, but the central one that's non-negotiable is a faithful church that celebrates, devotes, and promotes the preaching of all of Christ from all of Scripture. The entire council of the Christ-centered, Christ-focused, inspired Word of God. That the incarnation of God the Son, the life of God the Son, the death of God the Son, the resurrection of God the Son, and all the more that attends to the good news of the gospel is what we preach week in, week out, and what we gather to sit under. That's what we're looking at now in this second message. By way of reminder, last week, so as we're taking notes, I want to show you the outline for the sermon this morning, but as I mentioned at the beginning, this sermon stands on the shoulders of last week. So last week, here's what we saw. Last week, we saw the central charge to preach, what is preached, who is preached, and the benefits of preaching. That's what we saw last week. This week, we stand on top of those four points with three new ones. Here they are. Point number one this morning is the when, where, and how is the word preached. And we will, with laser focus, look at 2 Timothy 4.2 to answer the when, where, and how is the word preached. From there, we'll move into some new territory of Scripture, asking the question, who preaches the word? We'll be turning to a number of texts, beginning with 1 Timothy 3.2. And then we'll close our time with practical realities of the church and her preaching pastor. And so we will spend our time with a number of texts there, including 1 Timothy 4 and more. So that's where we're going this morning, standing on last week. Point number one, when, where, and how does Scripture tell us the word is preached? Look in your Bibles at 2 Timothy 4.2. The apostle says to Timothy, commands, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. There it is. The answer to when and where the word is preached is really quite simple and obvious to most of us. The word is preached whenever and wherever the church assembles. So when is the word preached? Whenever and wherever the church assembles. And we discern from the New Testament that the church primarily gathered on the Lord's Day, which was Sunday. But we also see with those words being ready in season and out of season... That the preaching of the word occurs when the church assembles regardless if it's popular or meets cultural standards or not. I think that's what's behind the phrase in season and out of season. What does Paul mean there? To be ready in season and to be ready out of season for the preacher and by implication for the church. There's at least three implications. Let me give them to you. Number one, for the preacher... The preacher should be prepared to preach all of Christ from all of Scripture at all times. Now, I do not think that that means 
that the, there needs to be a polished sermon on every verse of the Bible because it takes a lifetime to do that and more. But it does mean that for the church to put a preacher in the preacher's place, they should expect that man to be able to rightly handle all of the word of God and to be trained in the word of God. So when Paul says, be ready in season and out of season, that means the preacher should be prepared to rightly handle the word of God at all times, whether it's popular or not, and whether he's ready or not. That also means, number two, for the church, that we should gather to expect all of Christ to be preached from all of Scripture. And third, for the church, for all of us, the church should gather, or rather the church and the preacher, it means that preaching faithfully and wanting faithful preaching, we do it even in the face of cultural adversity and rejection. Because a lot of commentators will look at that phrase, out of season, and they interpret it not so much as, uh, Timothy didn't have a sermon prepared in that moment. And I think that's part of if the church gathers, maybe a small home fellowship, that he can rightly handle the word of God. But out of season seems to also imply that there is a social cost and even social danger in faithfully proclaiming what the word of God says regarding gender, sexuality, marriage, and more, for example. That the church must want, guard, and promote preaching faithfully in season and out of season because most cultures at any given time will have aspects of the culture that accord with what the Word of God says. And at the same time, cultures will also have things that are antithetical to and the exact opposite of what the Bible says. And we're in that cultural moment where the foundation of what it means to be human is turned upside down and inside out Contrary to the word of God. So we have to be ready in season and out of season. So when and where? When? In season, out of season? Where? When the church assembles? But that then begs the question of, of how? Or what are the components of a faithful biblical sermon? I, I wonder if you've ever thought about that before. I think a lot of times we approach the preaching of the word as um, how we feel. And the perception of length and was there enough entertainment or interest or stories or anecdotes or more. But what does scripture tell us? How is a sermon to be preached? What does Jesus expect us to expect from a preached sermon? What are the components of a biblically faithful sermon? Well, here in verse 2, we are given five hallmarks of a biblically faithful sermon which build on hallmarks we looked at last week. So look at these words. You have these five words, reprove, rebuke, exhort, complete patience, and teaching. Five hallmarks of a faithful sermon. Take the first two together. Reprove and rebuke. What does that mean? Well, if, if reproof emphasizes disapproval of biblical error, and that could be outright heresy, doctrinal error, or it could be behavioral error, that someone knows the truth but refuses to walk in the truth and do what Jesus requires of them in faithfulness to Christ. So if reproof emphasizes disapproval of biblical error, doctrinal or behavioral, 
Rebuke is disapproval of a person and their errant heart. So it's, it's two sides of one coin, and that second point, rebuke, flies in the face of our cultural sensibilities of don't tell me what to do, and you can't tell me that I'm wrong. Rebuke is permission to tell you what to do and tell you that you're wrong from Jesus. Reprove and rebuke means that in the faithful preaching of the word of God, there must be a challenge to false belief wrong belief, misapplied belief, and also the heart attitudes and heart motivations that lead to those wrong actions. So together, reprove and rebuke expose error, call out error, and are meant to convict of error and bring a person to their senses, is what the pastoral epistles speak of. Reprove and rebuke address both the root and fruit of error. The root being the heart from which the fruit of behavior or bad theology springs. So faithful biblical preaching, when Paul says preach the word, he then says reprove and rebuke. So reproof and error, or reproof and rebuke, correct the sinner. They correct the sin, and they correct the effects of the sin. It's like verbal weed pulling. And weeds are bad, and they choke life from the garden. That, in part, is why when you read through your New Testament, there's a number of places where even people, sinful men, dangerous men, are called out by name to warn the church of those men. Or in Philippians, there's two ladies having a dispute and they refuse to reconcile. They refuse to agree. And so Paul says, I entreat Yodi and Syntyche to agree with one another and more. There's times that names are called out. So reprove and rebuke, which flies against everything that our cultural sensibilities give us. To see this in action, read Galatians. Think about what Paul does in those first few chapters. He rebukes the entire church for not guarding the gospel, allowing false preachers into the church to preach a false gospel such that even Peter gets carried away by it. And so then he calls out Peter and Barnabas by name because of their sin and error. Or think about 1 Corinthians to see reproof and rebuke in action. There, Paul calls out all manner of their many sins, and both letters are largely based on, again, reproof and rebuke. So, so, so don't miss the point. We not only should not be surprised when there's reproof and rebuke in preaching, I think the implication here is that you should welcome it. What do I mean by that? Because for the Christian, the humble, teachable heart knows it is in the middle of its own sanctification. And therefore, one, we need to be guarded 
and error shown to us so that we can be protected from error on the one hand. And because we're in sanctification, our theology is still forming and we still need the um, gracious power of the Spirit to put off sin and put on Christ and more. The teachable, humble heart wants to be corrected, knows it's not yet perfected, and therefore needs to be warned, as I said, of personal error and the error of others so as to not to fall into it. So much of preaching is warning. So there's a positive component of showing and telling the truth, affirming the truth, and then there's the denial of things that assault the truth or lead astray and more. So reproof and rebuke shows us what we need to put off and how to put on Christ, what we need to put out of our lives because they're not in step with the gospel or what we need to be on guard against. So, if, like me, you have experienced conviction in the preaching of the word, the reality of reproof and rebuke may very well mean that if you listen to a sermon and you think that I've been reading your mail following you around at work, listening to how you talk to your kids or your spouse. If you're hearing the word preached and you begin to feel uncomfortable, even offended, that very well likely is evidence that the Spirit is working in your life in that moment to reprove and rebuke you. And the question is, how will you respond to Christ? Because it's the preaching of Christ and him and his word. Will you respond to Jesus by softening your heart and repenting where repenting is needed? Or will you harden your heart at reproof and rebuke? Humble hearts welcome reproof. Humble hearts welcome rebuke because they are teachable hearts. They care most about Christ and hard hearts don't care most about Christ. They care about themselves, their reputation, their comfort, and more. And therefore, they will tend to get defensive and put up the dukes to fight rather than submit to Christ. So reproof and rebuke harden some hearts and melt others. And so the question, my friends, is this. What kind of heart do you have? The third item in faithful preaching is exhortation. You see that word exhort there in 2 Timothy 4.2? To exhort is the urgent and passionate call for you to put the word of God into action. And that could be making, um, embracing new beliefs and embracing the vistas of God's sovereignty and gracious providence so that your anxiety and fears diminish new beliefs, or it could be new actions, putting off lying and putting on truth-telling or more. Exhortation, this word in the Greek can be translated as, as beg. It can be translated as, as urge and appeal and implore and entreat. Exhortation seeks to persuade you to not just instruct your heart, but to push your heart towards Jesus to persuade, to strengthen, and encourage, and it carries an element of comfort. Exhortation is like what James says in chapter 1, verses 22 to 24. James says, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, 
You hear it preached. You sit under sermons week after week after week. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his face in the mirror and he looks at himself and he goes away and he forgets what he looks like. And James says, don't be that guy. And exhortation says, don't be that guy. It's don't sit to be entertained, sit to put on Christ and to leave changed by Jesus and the word of Jesus. Exhortation says, don't be a fool, be wise. Exhortation says, look at the wisdom and treasures found in Jesus and don't look elsewhere. Exhortation says, keep in step with the Spirit, walk in the gospel, do the word, believe in Jesus, turn from your sins and embrace him. Exhortation says, be like the man who listened to Jesus and built his house on Christ. Exhortation rouses us, it emboldens us, it convicts us, it weaves the word into our soul by the Spirit, and sometimes it even gets an amen. That's exhortation. And next comes complete patience in this list of faithful biblical preaching. It takes time for the seed to sprout, and it takes time for the tree to bear fruit. We change across a lifetime, and that takes patience, both for the preacher and for the hearers, both of themselves end of each other. Complete patience also means that it takes time, building on last week, to preach the whole counsel of God in Christ. It's going to take a couple weeks to preach the book. And therefore, we need to have patience as it unfolds and we see how the whole biblical story fits together in Jesus. It takes patience. So as strong and as forceful as reproof and rebuke are, they come marinated in patience forbearance, in patient forbearance. The preacher takes a long view of sanctification, knowing that any true and lasting change, both in the individual and the church, is a work of the Spirit with the Word and not man. Every sermon is a seed sown, and the preacher waits for the Spirit to produce a harvest. Every sermon is a waypoint in the ultramarathon of life, that when we gather at the waypoint, we refresh and bandage wounds and restock supplies for the next leg of the race. Complete patience. Every sermon is dragon slaying, seeking to tear down strongholds of false belief, rout out the devil, destroy demons, and help armor the embattled church. That takes patience. It's dragon slaying. And lastly, teaching. Teaching. Teaching involves, as we saw last week, teaching is an element of preaching, but preaching is more than teaching, as we've already seen, as this last comes in the list. Reprove, rebuke, exhort, complete patience, and teaching. Teaching involves introducing, as I said last week, explaining, making sense of, and integrating ideas. Biblical teaching involves making sense of what the words mean in the context of the whole Bible as it unfolds. And woven through all of this is the passionate exaltation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
So you mix all these together, reproof, rebuke, exhorts, complete patience and teaching, and you have a coherent and yet artful form that make the components of biblical preaching. So the implication for the church is that when we gather, we should expect, want, pray for, promote, reproof, rebuke, exhortation, patience, and teaching. Now, every message will be differently calibrated with those different elements because the text sets the agenda for the message. But that's what we should look for. And by God's grace over the years, as more men enter this pulpit and more men are trained for the work of ministry and the preaching of the word, is what we should pray for and expect and want in all of these things and more. This leads to the second point then. Who preaches? Who preaches? If you would, join me in 1 Timothy chapter 3. We'll be in 1 Timothy for a little bit, looking at a few different passages so you can stay there. 1 Timothy 3. We see how the word is preached and so much more building on last week. The question is who? 1 Timothy 3, 2. Here we're in the list of the qualifications for pastor elder overseers. One office, three different titles. Verse 2 says, Therefore, an overseer must be, list of qualifications, which includes able to teach. You could look at T Timothy 1 and other places. 1 Timothy 3, 2, among many other passages, reveal that the pastor elders are those whom Jesus gifts to the church with the primary and central purpose of prayer and ministry of the word. You know, one of the dangers that I've experienced with the title pastor is that it's vague enough on its own that people create their own job descriptions in their minds of what pastors should do, when they should do it, and how they should do it. A lot of that is also derived from maybe a church that you were raised in and there was things that you really liked or disliked about pastors from a previous church. And so we tend to build a job description in our minds. And so the title pastor can come with many unspoken expectations. But what does Jesus expect? That's the question we should all ask. Can we discern how Jesus intends the pastor elders of a church to triage and prioritize their time and duties? We'll survey scripture and the, again, central, not soul, but central, non-negotiable task given by Christ to the plurality of pastor elders is the ministry of the word and prayer. There is more, but it's never less than that. Acts 6, Acts 20, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 5, not to mention the pastoral epistles and more, all of those taken together Chapter after chapter and verse after verse, we see a fierce dedication and, and devotion to the ministry of the Word of God and prayer. There are other duties and responsibilities, yes, but if the other duties and responsibilities for pastor elders reduce or replace the ministry of the Word and prayer, 
the church always suffers for it. And that's one of the summaries. We don't have time to turn to Acts 6. Acts 6 is widely believed to be the prototype of establishing elders and deacons in the life of the church. A massive crisis erupted across ethnic lines between Greek widows and Hebrew widows in the distribution of food. You're having a, looking at a church split regarding ethnicity. And the apostles, rather than running into the charge to fix the problem, said it's not right for us in essence, to solve this problem. Choose among your, yourselves seven men who are faithful to, in essence, deacon this problem and work it out. Why? Because the apostles needed to be faithful to the ministry of the Word of God and prayer. And that serves as a prototype. So my point is, no matter how important or even dire the need is in the life of a church, if anything prevents the plurality of pastoral elders from the ministry of the word and prayer, deacons need to be chosen so that the word ministry is protected and the pastor elders are freed up to do the task Jesus calls them to do. So the central, so, so then rather, the central responsibilities of pastor elders is teaching the word. 1 Timothy 3, 2, therefore an overseer must be able to teach. But in the previous point, we saw there's a difference. And last week we saw there's a difference between preaching and teaching. All preaching contains teaching, but not all teaching is preaching. And so pastor elders need to be able to teach. What I understand this to mean then is that when a church affirms pastor elders into a position of leadership, they know this to be a man who if you cut him, he bleeds Bible. They know him to be a man who they can go to to get biblical answers and counsel. Some elders are going to excel at word ministry in small group, informal settings, one-on-one -on -one discipleship. Other elders will excel at word-based ministry in more of a formal educational uh, Sunday school type setting. And some elders will excel in the ministry of the word through standing behind a pulpit and preaching the word of God. The point is, all elders have to be able to teach, but I do not think that all elders need to be gifted to preach. And how do I say that? Well, for example, if you turn over to 1 Timothy 5, verses 17 and 18, Paul tells Timothy in verse 17 of 1 Timothy 5, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For, verse 18, the Spirit says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Why are we looking at this? Remember, the question in the second point is, who preaches? So we've established a foundation that all pastor elders teach. But here we learn from 1 Timothy 5 that among the plurality of pastor elders, one or more will be so uniquely gifted in laboring and preaching and teaching that the church sets that man apart, or those men apart, set them aside to employ them in the central task of preaching and teaching. And that's what 1 Timothy 5 is explaining and more. 
So what that implies is that's how important preaching and teaching is to the life of a local church and the life of a Christian. So to the specific question of who preaches, preachers come from the, pastor, the, the plurality of pastor elders. You can have multiple. I praise God that all of our elders are able to step into the pulpit and preach the word faithfully and serve us well. Praise God for that. So the specific question of who preaches means it's normally the man whom the church has decided to set apart for the task in keeping with 1 Timothy 5.17. Again, to be clear, every pastor elder is a man of the word whom you can go to, learn from, benefit from, but I do not believe every pastor elder necessarily is a preacher to do it week in, week out, because God has gifted them differently. Part of the beauty of a plurality, we all can minister the word of God, but all of us have different strengths. Some are more gifted in administration or leadership or these different components, and it's the plurality that serves the church in its fullness, not any one guy, because there's only one guy who can bless the whole church, and his name is Jesus. So the responsibility and expectation of the church is to see to it. Let me say that again, because I'm talking to you. The responsibility and expectation of the church is to see to it that men who are able to teach fill the office of pastor elder along with all the other qualifications and the pastor elders and the church is to make sure the pulpit is characterized by what we've heard all last week and this week and all the elements of faithful preaching. That's the responsibility of the church. So who preaches? Among the pastor elders, you will typically have a main preaching pastor who arises. And this leads then to our third and final point, practical realities of the church and her preaching pastor. So you could turn to 1 Timothy 4 and stage there. We'll be getting it into a few moments. But what I want to do in this final point, on the one hand, is is actually get autobiographical. And the point of getting autobiographical is not so much to talk about myself, but I know that there's future preachers among our midst. And there's visiting believers who will be moving back to your, going home after your vacation or whatever brings you here today. And, and I want you to get a glimpse into the life of being a preaching pastor. And also the expectations of a church and responsibilities of a church to her preaching pastor, and more. And so what I'm going to say is autobiographical, but in my experience with different preaching buddies around the nation, is that what I'm going to say about myself is very similar to what other men have experienced in that call, as it were, to being a preaching pastor. So I want to do this in this third and final point by asking or exploring four different questions. Here's the first one. Number one, how do you know if you're gifted to be a preaching pastor. For me, it was February of 2001. I thought I was going to have a career as a wildland firefighter, and the, we had an inch of rain on the forest, and so I came back to church, um, and the senior pastor invited me to start a college ministry. And the next thing I knew, I was mic'd up in front of a room full of my peers, uh, preaching verse by verse through 1 John, and I remember it felt like I came alive. 
Don't get me wrong, wildland firefighting was really cool. And it's easier to work with burning trees than people. <laughs> but the opportunity to be set apart, I took Friday off of work, studied and read all day, wrote the sermon out by hand, stepped into the pulpit and preached, probably had no business being there, and just super nervous. I remember driving home that first night thinking to myself, melodramatically, because I can be that, is if I cannot do this for the rest of my life, Jesus can kill me and take me home now. <laughs> but I was serious just thinking about that because the opportunity for me, it just, it, this is what I'm supposed to do, is what I thought. And it wasn't so much an evaluation of how good I was, but to be able to open the Bible, focus on it, study it, and then stand up and tell people about Jesus. I just couldn't think of anything better than I could do with my life than that. So how do you know, maybe some of you men sitting here, young men, older men, how do you know if you're a pastor, elder, uniquely called to preach? You have a burning, unquenchable desire for the word of God. Don't even think that you have any business stepping up to tell people what the word says if you're not a man of the word first. You have a burning, unquenchable desire for the word of God. You have a burning, unquenchable desire for the love of the local church. And you have an inescapable burden, no matter where you go, to faithfully preach the word to the church. That's how you begin to know if you're gifted by Jesus to be a preaching pastor. The other side of that coin is that the church actually wants you to preach. If Jesus, doesn't give you an, if Jesus doesn't give you an audience, take that as a sign from Jesus. So what that means then, how do you know if you're gifted to preach? The external reality confirmed by the church affirms the internal burden to preach faithfully all the Bible. And I would say that it's, as we saw last week, it's preaching Christ and him crucified and not yourself. It's preaching Christ, ironic since I'm being autobiographical, it's preaching Jesus Christ and the fame of his name and drawing people to him and in your position, helping lead a church through the pulpit such that if you die, the church won't miss you because another man can step in right away and take your place and faithfully discharge the duties that you were doing better than you. That would be a goal of a man who desires to be a preaching pastor. But next, the second of the four questions about the practical realities of the church and her preaching pastor, what does Jesus expect of a preaching pastor? Well, everything from last week and everything so far this week. But let me rifle through three texts. But you can, you can, put, you can turn to 1 Timothy 4 and, and I'll meet you there. James 3.1 Here's what Jesus expects of a preaching pastor. James 3.1 Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. If you want the searching gaze of Christ to bring you under stricter judgment at the day of judgment, become a teacher of the word of God. That's your invitation. 
Or how about this? Jesus expects this of a preaching pastor. 2 Timothy 2, verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed. Why? Rightly handling the word of truth. That's what Jesus expects. And so if you believe the Lord is calling you to be a preaching pastor or to be a preacher, these should be true of your life. And dear church, this is what you need to expect of those who step in the pulpit. Men who do their best to present themselves approved to God. And meeting me in 1 Timothy 4, verses 12 to 16, I love this exhortation. There are so many words in here that you need to underline and highlight. And I want you to see these words of me See these words of anyone who steps in the pulpit and see these words as what we need to guard as a church. 1 Timothy 4, verses 12 to 16. Let no one, Paul says to Timothy, despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Know this. Look at verse 13. Until I come, devote yourself. Look at that word. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. So what is Timothy to do? Devote himself to the elements of preaching. Verse 14, do not, Timothy, do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Verse 15, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them. Baptize yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Think of all of those admonitions. So the question is, what does Jesus, Jesus expect of a preaching pastor? And by extension, all pastor elders? These things. What should the church expect? These things and more. Think of all of these admonitions. The, the singular focus of the ministry of the Word of God. Do your best. To present yourself approved. Put these things before the brothers and sisters. Set the believers an example. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have. Practice these things. Immerse yourself. Keep a close watch. Persist. All of those commands, and here's Paul speaking to Pastor Timothy with the church listening in on the charges given to Timothy. That means a church should graciously help, graciously expect, and graciously guard her pastor elders, all of them, and the preaching pastor to be these things and do these things according to the word of God. You need to help us practice. You need to help us. You need to help me not neglect. 
you need to help me devote myself to the public reading of scripture to exhortation to teaching you need to help your pastor elders keep a close watch on themselves and on the teaching of the church you need to help us to persist in these things that means then all of this is what you should be praying for me and your pastor elders and as your senior pastor to protect me and guard me so that I can be faithful to discharge these public ministries of the word of God that scripture tells me to do. And it's what you should expect. You know, when I applied to seminary back in 2004 to get my Master's of Divinity, I said in effect on my uh, entrance exam that I really wanted to go to seminary for the singular, well, double purpose. I wanted to know Jesus better. But I also wanted to be further sharpened so that I could better sharpen others. And I wrote something similar when I applied for my doctorate of ministry in 2017. And the reason I say that is because that should be in the heart of every man who desires to serve as a pastor, elder, and preacher, and teacher in the church. That we should desire to see Jesus magnified and to exhaust ourselves until we die in seeing the church built up in Jesus. To make a name for Christ and not ourselves. And so the next, that was two questions. Here's number three. How long does it take to prepare a sermon? What does it look like to prepare a sermon? Just step in the pulpit and wing it. Golf the rest of the week with Gary. How long does it take to prepare a sermon? Every man is different in his process because each process is unique to the man. But I know this to be true, and this is going to sound cliche, but it's true. Every sermon takes a lifetime to prepare. So, this is the best you get of me. It might sound dramatic, and it might sound cliche, but it's true. Sermon preparation is not calculated by hours in a week, or days, months, weeks, years, or even decades. Or rather, it is calculated by the days, weeks, and months, and years, and decades of knowing and following Jesus in his word. On meditating on the word of Christ until it begins to fortify your bones in the eternal realities of the incarnation of God the Son and Jesus' death on the cross for our sins and his resurrection from the grave for our justification and the outpouring of his spirit and more when it becomes the fixture of our souls. So everything we have is put into a sermon. So preaching is both an art and a science. So you can have a pattern, you can lay out your week, you can have a structure, and every guy who preaches writes his own book about how his way to preach is the right way to preach. Everyone's got an opinion. Preaching is an art and science. And just as every instrument plays its unique note as it plays the music, so every preacher is to preach all of Christ from all of Scripture through the, his unique voice and his unique personality. Part of being diligent to present yourself approved and rightly handling the word and the analogies of soldiering and farming and competing athletics all convey the reality of the hard work and focused study required to prepare and write a sermon. There is Greek and Hebrew to parse. There is scripture to mind. There's commentaries to consult 
to make sure that you're reading wisely. There's theologies to study, there's topical books to read, and much prayers to pray. But practically speaking then, how long does it take to prepare a sermon? Again, it depends on the familiarity with the text and the topic, the skill, the experience, the knowledge of the preacher. But no matter what type of mechanical process you have in place, this book is living and active. And that means that when you open the book, it's dangerous, and you never know what Jesus is going to do to you and where he's going to take you. And therefore, sometimes it can be quick, or sometimes it could be the male version of labor. It's very difficult. So, so for example, John MacArthur, have you heard of him? He takes, on average, 32 hours a week to write a sermon. Mark Dever takes between 30 and 35 hours a week to write a sermon. John Piper, he takes 16. That characterized his later years of ministry and how he did things. And he also noted that the way that he writes sermons, he does not recommend that any young man ever replicate. But he takes 16 hours. Now think about these numbers and think about those men. Remember I said a whole lifetime goes into every sermon. There's another preacher by the name of Steve Cole. Don't know if you've heard of him. And in correspondence with that brother, he said in his later years, about 20 to 25 hours per week was required to go into the message. These are all men who have either retired from ministry, faithfully finished the, 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 um, crossed the finish line and more, 32 hours, 35 hours, 16, 20 to 25 hours to sit down and to write a sermon. And if I'm not mistaken, all of these men also manuscript. There's two main ways to preach. You either write by hand, manuscript what you're going to say, or extemporaneous, which is a fancy way of saying you kind of wing it. Now, extemporaneous preaching is you, you, you've, you've studied Scripture all week. You might write an outline or some bullet points, put a sticky note in your Bible, and then you, you just begin to speak. You know, for me, I think that right now I also am in the ballpark of 20 to 25 hours a week. And honestly, I think I need more to serve you better. After spending time in the study, it's time to write. I used to preach extemporaneous, but over the years, for the sake of my hearers and my own soul, I have moved to greater and greater degrees of manuscripting, where now most of what I preach, the majority, though not all, is from a manuscript. Why? Um, isn't, isn't it quench the spirit to write out the sermon beforehand? You ever heard that? That's what I heard when I was first saved. No, to write out the sermon beforehand is no less a work of the Spirit because the Spirit is no less at work in the preparation of a sermon than he is in the delivery of the sermon. And the all-knowing Spirit who is helping you, as it were, write the sermon, directing and providentially guiding that time, knows exactly who's going to be there to sit under the sermon's preaching and know all those details, what's going to be said, what people need to hear, and more. So it's a foolish and false dichotomy to think that it's unspiritual to have a manuscript. 
And what I've learned and found by experience is that manuscripting serves and protects the preacher and the hearers from rabbit trails, disorganized thoughts, unclear communication, unhelpful comments, hobby horses, and the like. But here's why I'm talking about this. Manuscripting is very hard work. It may not sound like it, but the word painstaking is the best adjective I know to describe what it's like to manuscript a sermon. I have known from experience it's much easier to study, write some notes, step in the pulpit, and kind of wing it and talk than it is to sit down and think well about what the church needs to hear. So then, the last question is this. What is the church's responsibility for the preaching pastor? This, by extension, is true of all the pastor elders, but part of the beauty of a plurality of elders is as they shoulder the load of the whole church together, it's able to free up and set apart a preaching pastor such as myself. What is the church's responsibility for the preaching pastor? I mentioned last week, I think it was second service, but I'm going to repeat myself because it could have been here. John Piper used the illustration that sermon prep is like a mine shaft. Right here, there's a mine shaft that you don't see behind this pulpit. And what the church does is it sets apart a man to put on helmet and gloves, pickaxe, go down into that mine shaft, and to mine for gems and jewels from the treasures of Scripture all week long so as to come out and to chiefly serve and disciple the church in this moment of heralding the Word of God. And so what a church does, 1 Timothy 5.17, by setting apart a preaching pastor is to set that man apart saying, we are commissioning you above all the other things that you can do to go and mine the riches of the word of God so that you can rightly handle it and faithfully expose Jesus to us and who he is. That's what the church has called me to do, among other things, but it's central to that. To neglect preaching, and all that I said before about the study and the Hebrew and the Greek and, and the commentaries and all of those things and the time and labor to simply sit down and think about sentences. To neglect preaching would neglect the central feature that makes a church faithful. And that means every week and every day I have to triage and distinguish between the good and the best for the sake of our whole church. Because good things come my way, and if I run after those things, then it's taking away from sermon prep time, which serves all of us in this moment. Of what I can say yes to or no to, and I need your help in understanding that reality. So first, pray for me. Pray for your pastor elders as we handle the word. Pray for me as I write the sermons. Pray for my heart because it is a very dangerous duty to be employed in the Word of God. Think about how your own hearts can go warm and cold to Christ and the str struggles and trials that you face. It's very dangerous to stand here and have a heart that is unaffected by Christ and His Word. So pray for my soul. Pray for your pastors, pastor elders' souls. Pray for the sermon writing because it's all for you. It's all for us. And it's all for our heart's response to the word. Second, help me guard what you have set me apart to do specifically by protecting my study and sermon prep. What that means is 
don't be offended if I redirect requests for long-term counseling, administrative questions, and the like to our other three pastor elders. It's in part why Christ has given them to us. Shouldering tasks like that is part of what Jesus has placed them here to do as they also pray and minister the word. So don't take it personally if I say no to something. And if you text me saying, I know it's your day off, but if I reprove and rebuke you, I do it with the love of Jesus and my wife and children. So church, protect and promote the preaching of all of Christ from all of Scripture because it's for all of us. And seeing lost people saved and save people more like Jesus. And this is what I want to close with. All of this, all these details and more, all of this preaching, it's all about Christ, the Word made flesh. Jesus is the entire Bible preached with skin on. Next to his death and resurrection, the centerpiece of Jesus' ministry was preaching the gospel of the kingdom of heaven, and now he's given that job to us. See Luke 4.43. The gift of preaching and a preacher to the church is so that we might prize Christ together, savor his name together, understand his word and ways together, minister by the Spirit to one another, glory in the Father together, grow in the gospel together. We can never lose sight that everything that we assemble for hinges upon, or rather hangs upon Jesus hanging on the cross. We can never lose sight that everything we assemble for hinges upon folded grave cloths and a rolled away stone, an empty tomb. Jesus builds and binds his church with the preaching of the gospel to his church. And that's why preaching is central to always say and do and see together. So friend, if if you don't know Christ, this is what we're all about, preaching Christ to verbally see him as his verbal presence goes among us. But what you need to know most is that it's Jesus and Jesus alone who can save you from your sins. Remove your guilt and shame and sorrow and more. Stop running from the one who is calling to you. Turn to the cross, repent of your sins, renounce them, believe in Jesus, and receive the times of refreshment that can only come from him. And church, love the word of God preached. Amen? Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your wisdom that if all things you could have done, you invented a thing called preaching, wherein you desire God the Son to be made famous through words spoken. So Jesus, by your spirit, be famous in this place. Father, glorify yourself. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, I invite you to stand as we sing this song, and then I'll come back up to lead us to the Lord's table in a few moments.